Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of iFreaks. This week on our panel, we have James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. I'm Andrew Madsen in Salt Lake City, and we have a guest this week. Uh, Brian, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, everybody. Uh, this is Brian from, uh, I used to live in San Francisco, but now I'm Dublin, California. Uh, still really close, but um, yeah, that's where I'm at right now. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Well, we're really happy to have you on, Brian. You have, uh, there, I think there's quite a, quite a few things we could talk uh, A video you did about a roadmap to being a professional iOS developer. Um, why don't you introduce us to that? What What is this roadmap? What's it for? And why did you make this video? Sure, sure. Uh, so yeah, there's a video up. Uh, it has about 40,000 views on youtube.com. And it's basically a roadmap to getting hired as a professional developer in the industry. And I guess it's more um, geared towards developers in the Silicon Valley. And the roadmap basically starts from what you should know as uh, some of the basics. So for example, learning the Swift uh, programming language, maybe Objective-C. Uh, obviously, you want to learn how to use Xcode as well. And then if you're like just starting out, you probably have a lot of questions as to like what's special about uh, the Swift language. So some things that are a little bit different might be uh, functional programming and object-oriented uh, programming is handled just maybe a little bit differently um, compared to like traditional uh, school languages like like maybe Java. But uh, yeah, it starts off at the very basics. And then as you go down the tree, which is available online, uh, the tree it explores a lot of other topics that are very important to, um, I guess, facing the interview questions at an iOS um, software development role. Yeah. Did you make this diagram or did somebody else make it? Uh, no, um, I can't remember who exactly the author is, but I believe his name is Cameron. But uh, there's a link online. Uh, it's very detailed and there's like a lot of topics. Uh, I feel like it does need to be updated a little bit, but it's still very relevant in 2019. Yeah, so I'm looking at it, I, you know, and I'm, I don't have any, I, my full-time job, as I think regular listeners know, is teaching people iOS development. And, uh, I don't have any major, <laughs> you know, major complaints about it. It's, it kind of lays things out. And, and I think this is actually interesting because when you come into a, a new field or try to learn a new skill or a new ecosystem, that's fairly complex, it can be really hard to figure out sort of where to start and, and what things you should be focusing on and what things you can wait until later. And, um, this, this lays things out in a way that it's color coded. So the yellow things are basically like things you should probably learn if you're going to be an iOS developer. And then gray things are things that, you know, maybe, maybe learn this. It might be useful, um, for some people. And then, and then there are kind of the, the salmon colored things that are like, 
probably want to learn one of these, but you don't need to learn all of them sort of thing. So uh, yeah, I, I really like this. Um, why do you think this has gotten some traction for you? You know, you did a video on it. You said you've got 40,000 views. Uh, I wonder who you think are the people that are actually, you know, watching that and using this are. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, I think in general on YouTube, you'll find a lot of people searching for like how to become a developer and the other kind of a tangent question is like, what's the difference between a, like a beginner versus a uh, uh, somewhat middle level and then a senior level uh, developer. And I find that this, this roadmap, all the um, highlighted in yellow is, it's basically like all the things that you should know as a kind of a starting off developer in iOS. And then as you advance, you really should get to know some of these other uh, these other boxes in this roadmap that are not so like um, beginner friendly and the video it's gained a lot of traction because everyone's already talked about most of these topics that are like considered beginner level. And then the people that are trying to get jobs, right. They want to differentiate themselves. So this, this diagram, I feel like really showcases, what most people probably don't know if they're getting into the field and there's a lot of detail in this diagram that um, I think that's what people like about it. It's like really well thought out. Uh, no, for sure. Like even like you mentioned, like starting off with language grammar, Swift and Objective-C and you can go in different paths from there, go back and forth. I think that there are really useful things like common topics, like hu the mobile human interface guidelines, uh, Cocoa design patterns, network programming, iOS technologies. That's a good thing to, to have on there because you start off, and I think like Andrew mentioned, like you don't really know what you don't know yet. So at least having a base idea of what the mobile human interface guidelines are. I think that's, that's useful. Can we get into some nitpicks? <laughs> yeah, that's always the fun, fun part. So I do have a few nitpicks. Um, one is I don't like how Swift is pointed at functional programming as if Swift is like a purely functional language when really most iOS developers use Swift more as an object-oriented language than anything. And certainly for a brand new developer, they need to learn object-oriented programming first. Uh, so that's kind of one nitpick, although I sort of like the, you know, like functional programming is a great thing to learn, but I do sort of think it should be farther down the list. Yeah, I, I would agree mostly to that statement. Um, I think functional programming has become more of this buzzword that everyone is like associating with, with Swift for better or worse. And yeah, I, I would consider it a more advanced topic. So for anyone that's really trying to get into iOS development, um, it's not the most important thing, but it's certainly something to 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 look into as you progress. Um, definitely, as a person who learned object-oriented programming first, I would say it must be learned first. Um, but I don't think that's actually everyone in the industry. And you know, in two two years, we're talking about this. Swift UI is released. Um, you know, it's 2019 right now. Swift UI, Swift UI is not even out that yet, and it's probably not not going to be ready to use for real apps that have to support maybe a version back or not for a couple of years. But I think those concepts are becoming a lot more important, a lot more mainstream. Like even I've I've been very much not a proponent of creating your reactive architectures on iOS because no one really knows how to do that for iOS. There's a pocket of people that do, um, but for the most part, you have to train. It's hard enough for people to find that can even do anything iOS, like no other frameworks, and to add another entirely different skill set on top was maybe not the way to go if you're trying to hire people and build a team and uh, have have a 
have a code base that's going to work for you. Uh, but I see that paradigm shifting over the next year or two. So I, I think functional programming, um, maybe you're not cracking into Lisp or anything like that, but those concepts are coming front of mind to the iOS community. So I think it's a lot more important than it was when I was coming up. Yeah. Especially with um, combine being introduced with or along Swift UI. And <laughs> I don't know if you guys have looked at the combine framework and some of the demo projects or some of the videos on WWDC. Those, the, the combine framework is, is pretty gnarly. It's pretty crazy. And if you don't have a, a foundation in functional programming, I think it's, it's going to be a, a little difficult to, to grapple with. Oh, that makes sense. There's also a language that I don't see on here is Swift Objective-C. That's for people to just write Objective-C in Swift. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> we should add that. <laughs> Although, I don't know, that seems to be more of a problem for people who are Objective-C programmers or were Objective-C programmers before Swift. I, I suppose there's a lot of people who are Swift native people at this, time, at this point. I'm kind of a Swift Objective programmer. Probably shouldn't be, but <laughs> I, I try not to be, but it's hard. <laughs> I can't remember the last project I've worked on with Objective-C. It's been so long. I remember. It was last night. I still like it. I still want to get back to Objective-C. I still, I still enjoy it. I don't. Yeah, I wasn't joking about that. I mean, I've, I've actually been doing some work on a side project. It's all on Objective-C and a, and a little consulting project that came up a couple of weeks ago that was all on Objective-C. So one thing over the years that I've noticed is that um, whenever I go back to Objective-C, just to, I don't know, for curiosity, I guess, um, I noticed that's a much faster in terms of the IDE. So when you're typing out functions and typing out code, it's a lot faster than Swift. Am I, am I wrong on that? You are not wrong. Yeah. I don't know why that is. Um, you know, somebody on the Xcode team could certainly give a more coherent answer than I can. Um, you know, one thought is of course that Swift's, uh, Swift requires the compiler to do more in terms of like type inference and stuff. And so, and, and all of the, like autocomplete effectively relies on the compiler um, doing a pass over the over the source code and uh, at least building a, an AST or something and and there's just a lot more work involved in doing that than there is for Objective C. Um, but I, that's about as far as my guess goes. Yeah, that's my guess as well. If if they could bring back the speed of the Objective C compiler into the the Swift environment, that would be my number one wish. I think that's a long time coming. Yeah. Just with how the language is done, statically typed. So it's never going to be as fast, but they can keep improving things and hardware gets better. You know, it's still a very young language. So we've got plenty of time to improve the speed of the compiler. and We've got smart people working on it, but it's just one of those things. And yeah, a lot of teams, especially big teams, are jumping through hoops just trying to get compile times down by doing like weird language tricks. But if we're taking a look at this, this document, where's a good place to start after you've done like Swift and Objective-C? And I noticed like you go look getting deeper, you've got some more things in Objective-C and Swift, like going on protocol-oriented programming, concurrent programming. What are some, uh, some good things to, to do after the basic language stuff? Mm -hmm. I think, so I guess for the people that are listening and not looking at the, the roadmap online, there's a lot of items on this, this roadmap. I don't know, there's maybe 50. And I think if you're looking at it from like a bird's eye view, there's probably way too much that, it seems like there's way too much to learn as an iOS developer. But from my experience, like having taught online for the last three years, people tell me that they get jobs all the time. And it's mostly 
it's mostly um, learning how to work with a database, learning how to create these CRUD screens, and learning how to effectively uh, do some network programming, which is also on this roadmap, and then also interacting with RESTful APIs, obviously. Um, those are most of the things that you need as a kind of a beginning, getting your feet wet and trying to enter the software, uh, software industry. Uh, that makes sense. I think, you know, almost every, every job in the iOS world is, Hey, go to this network, get down this JSON, throw it up in a table view. You know, that, that's, that's so common. And outside of that, it's like, you don't know, like every app's going to be something different. Some companies have an app that's very protocol-oriented programming. Some it'll have something else that's completely different. Um, some's like straight MBVM. Um, so it, you can't really say I need to know all these things. Um, and but I think a lot of companies still do. They want someone who already knows all the stuff they're using, which I think is a mistake because you can learn all this stuff. Um, it's and you know, also you you forget things. So like. There you go. Common topics, iOS technologies, multi-touch event handling. I haven't done that in years. Like if that came up in an interview question, I'd be like, I don't even remember. Um, Cause it's been a few years since I was doing anything like that. Um, but um, yeah, I think the more enlightened companies will look at, say, hey, they have the core things down. They have good practices, um, good head for solving problems, and maybe have some experience. But yeah, I wouldn't say you need to know all these things because there's a lot here and you could be working in the industry for years and not touch a lot of this stuff. Yeah, exactly. I think out of everything that's lower down the tree, uh, probably one of the, the more important ones is at least to me is like build on development and uh, how to work with Jenkins and maybe Travis and Fastlane. And also you, you probably should have gone through the in, entire process of deploying your application on the app store so getting to the final screen of hitting the uh, the approval or the the release button on the App Store, I feel like those are more important than a lot of these other side topics here. I don't know if you guys agree. Yeah, I I I do tend to agree with you. This episode is sponsored by GitLab Commit. GitLab's inaugural user event brings together the GitLab community to connect, learn, and inspire. Speakers will showcase the power of DevOps in action through strategy and technology decisions, lessons learned, behind-the-scenes looks at the development lifecycle, and more. Learn how to innovate the future of software development by registering today. GitLab Commit Brooklyn, September 17th, and GitLab Commit London, October 9th. You can find it at devchat.tv slash GitLab Commit. And, and another thing, you know, I, I guess priority is like, you know, top to bottom, but, but that it's more like, like you said, it's more like sort of more like life cycle is top to bottom because the deployment stuff's all the way at the bottom. And I think that, you know, it is more important than, for example, maybe understanding how, <laughs> you know, the, how instruments works or something like that, which is farther up. It actually brings up something important that I think, you know, for our listeners who are getting into iOS development, uh, who might be looking at this and thinking, oh, this is a good road roadmap. And, and I actually think, I actually think it is a good roadmap. Um, remember to focus on actually building things. It can still be easy to get bogged down and think, well, I got to learn all this stuff before I actually ship something. And that's certainly not true. There are fundamentals that you need to learn. You're not going to get anywhere if you don't know anything about Swift or, you know, or Xcode or UI kit or whatever. But um, I think it's pretty important as a new learner to start building things uh, early because that's where you really learn is when you're, when you're working toward a goal. And also I think just from a personal motivation standpoint, 
um, you'll probably fizzle out if you're not doing stuff that you actually find fun and seeing results and early results where, you know, you get stuff working and, and experience the sort of that, you know, joy that comes from building something and, and seeing it work and seeing it do what you, you wanted it to do. That is what makes everybody I know that's a, that's an engineer want to be an engineer. No, I totally agree with that. Um, so one of the things that I've noticed, uh, with like, <clears throat> like these types of like, Oh, we should know about, you know, programming language X and you know, this software technology Y I noticed that if you don't have a project to really work against, like you don't want to have something that you want to build out. You're never really going to dive into these topics. Like there's really no way for you to even notice what these things are. And I find that I kind of compare this stuff to like learning a, a spoken language, like a real spoken language, like maybe English or Chinese or Japanese, right? These topics are here are more like, it's kind of like the grammar aspect of a language. You don't really learn the grammar directly. It's more of a, a thing that you learn that's like secondary to the main thing that you want to accomplish. And for like a spoken language, you, you want to be able to communicate with people. And with like these iOS topics, it's more like you want to build something. And along the way, you'll, you'll, you'll just pick up these skills naturally, kind of like what grammar is. That's my opinion on, on the subject. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big believer in the best way to learn something is to do it and you know be be aware of course that you're new and so you're probably not going to do things the optimal way as you when you learn as you go along and and whatever but um I, I just really don't think there's a better way to learn things than to dive in and do them um and so uh you know and and like, like I said part of that's just psychology um but part of it is j just the psychology of motivation and actually keeping yourself motivated to work hard and and power through problems because you have a goal in sight but part of that's also you know like you said you you learn you learn in order to solve the problems that you encounter as you go down that road and it's a much harder thing to sort of look in isolation at this long list of topics and and think, well, okay, now, you know, now my job is to learn core data and I'm going to learn that by, you know, reading the documentation and watching tutorials on YouTube and, and whatever, but I'm, I'm not actually going to build anything that I care about with it. You're probably not going to learn it very well if you do that. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like the chicken and the egg problem. Like these topics are interesting in itself, but if you don't have anything to apply it against, it's like totally boring and totally dry. And, you know, let's be real. No one's going to really care if you know these topics you don't know how to apply them in a real project. I have, that comes up with students a lot. Uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm teaching, they'll say, Oh, I, I really get the concepts. I understand all of this. I just don't know how to write the code. <laughs> and I, you know, that's just a common thing. And I have to say, well, like nobody's going to pay you to say you understand something if you can't actually write the code. And that, and that, that is, a, you know, sometimes that's a difficult mental leap, but um, it's certainly a leap you have to make from, you know, understanding things sort of academically or being able to sort of rattle off things that you've read about them. But there's a difference between that and actually being able to apply those things in a creative way to solve problems that are real, real problems uh, before you. Yeah, that's kind of what I find so interesting and fun about programming. It's like you always hear about these very abstract topics and they all sound very magical, but it's not until you like actually type out a few lines of code. It's not until then that you really, really understand why you're doing this thing this way. And I guess more importantly, why this, this technology was developed in the first place, because 
a lot of times you'll find yourself reinventing the wheel and you'll quickly see, oh, someone has already thought about this problem and that's why this framework exists. And I should probably use this framework instead of just hacking my way through with my own solution because other people, other smarter people have, have already thought it out. Evan, are you here? I am here. Well, feel free to jump in. Yeah, I, I've been a little shy. Sorry about that. <laughs> Evan? Hi. Hi, Brian. Um, yeah, I, I just started looking over this, uh, the chart, and I've been kind of digesting it. So um, looking at all of the many pieces of the chart. <laughs> just okay, like for the benefit of our listeners that Evan, Evan Stone uh, jumped in a little bit late for our show today, so he wasn't introduced at the beginning, but he's here now. I apologize for that. This is this is totally planned. This is one of those things like you know the hip hop videos where you have like so and so the main artist featuring someone else. You just bring them out at the end. They do something something like really cool. It's kind of like that. This is the podcast version and just jump right in. Yes. Yeah. Just like you know. Yeah. Uh, actually, it's funny that you mentioned. I think uh, I think it was something Andrew was saying, and I, I was thinking that a lot of times these topics that are on here, uh, they often come to us. You know, at least that's been my experience, which is that I don't necessarily need to seek out a particular technology or whatever. It's more like uh, I have this need and now I have to go learn this thing to figure out how to make this. Like I want to learn how to be able to set up a CI system. So now I have to learn that, right? So I can have continuous integration and things will build and uh, things will be happy, hopefully. So uh, that's just one example, you know, uh, data persistence and network communication, all these kinds of things. It's like these problems kind of come to us. So it's not always this like straightforward path down, you know, through these things. And, um, but I, I thought it was very interesting that you said that, Andrew, that, you know, it's not until you, you're you really working and building with these things that you're going to learn them well. And I've, I've definitely found that to be the case too. I know. I'm definitely not very good at finding projects to do by some random technology. It's like, oh, I'm gonna learn core data. Here's a project I wanna use core data on. I would, I would have the problem, and then I would figure out what needs, what's the right technology to do it. I, if I asked me to pay, think of a project I wanted to work on um, for, I don't know, Keyed Archiver, I, I'd, be, I'd be lost. I would have no idea. It's funny that you bring that example up, because I actually agree with you, but um, when core data first came out in um, 10.4 Tiger in, in 2005, I wanted to learn it. And so I, I, I did just that. I thought, well, I, want, I wonder if I can come, come up with a project that would be, you know, good for core data. And, and so I did. Um, and back then there was a feature built into core data that's actually not there anymore, but where you could just drag your core data model file into, into interface builder and it would create a UI for you with a table view and add and remove buttons and detail text fields and the whole nine yards, which was really pretty impressive to me. And I, I basically had the app, like the very bare bones of the app that I wanted to write with no code written at all. And just dragging that model file in. Um, but I kept, I kept hacking on it and I actually still, uh, develop and sell that app today. Um, 14 years later, almost 14 years later. And, um, so (laughs) it can happen, but yeah, I think you're right. That's, that's, that's quite the unicorn. If you can actually do an app based on a technology you want to learn and sell it, make some money off it. That's like the, that's like the trifecta. Yeah. So I tell hats people off, hats com- off to you. I tell people when they complain about core data specifically that I can't complain about it because I've made too much money on it. And as a person who's, who's made a lot of money cleaning up other people's core data messes, I also have made a lot of money off core data. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And, and as someone that has uh, written courses on core data, I've also made money on it. 
because it's so difficult and strange at times. It's it's a good way to uh, get a good size audience from from core data alone. No, definitely. I guess I'm the odd man out because I haven't made a lot of money off of core data. <laughs> Maybe someday. Actually, it's funny this this new thing with the core data, um, iCloud. You know the the persistence that's coming up does sound interesting. So actually that's an inst instance where I may be jumping on that. I know, I know it's, it has a checkered past, uh, these core data syncing things, but this one sounds interesting. You remind me that I'm giving a talk about that at uh, Cocoa Heads next month. Are you really? Yeah. And I've done it. Well, I've done exactly zero, um, learning about it so far. So I have a month. Excellent. Perhaps you can fill us in on it <laughs> and what your experience is and how, how it is. Yeah, so I do, I do have experience with uh, iCloud Core Data. It was called iCloud Core Data back in whatever, 2011, whenever iCloud first came out. And um, <laughs> that was a big disaster, you know? Yeah, classic disaster. But it was, sold, it was sold along the same lines as what they were selling this year, which is, hey, you just set one property and everything just works and it's magic and you don't have to do anything. And Core Data will just sync across your devices. And I actually wrote a whole app. Um, not, not, not an app where I was like, okay, I'm going to figure out an app to write with this. I actually had a, a client that wanted an app that synced through iCloud and it happened, you know, that they wanted it at that same time. So I thought, great, I'll use iCloud Core Data for this. And uh, that did not turn out so well. I'm just hoping this second time is a charm, you know. There we go. Uh, so getting back to the, the document, uh, Evan brought up the, the CI stuff, building deployments, uh, Brian, do you have a feel for like which of these technologies would make sense to learn if someone's like just starting out? Mm. Uh, do you have a feel for that? I think from my experience in, I guess, Silicon Valley, it's, I run into Jenkins more than uh, any of these other deployment technologies. I think Fastlane is, is pretty popular too. I don't think it's exactly the same thing. Jenkins is more like a build server. Um, I feel like I get a lot of these students that want to learn about these topics, but it's very hard to, to have a project already on, on deck to, to demonstrate what the capabilities of Jenkins actually, like what it allows you to do. So one of the things that I struggle with is uh, coming up with projects that actually expose these more advanced topics. And I feel like Jenkins is one of those things that uh, if you learn, it's pretty impressive once you enter the interview room and to tell the, the employer that you actually know Jenkins and how to write tests and test cases and automatic build systems with, with Jenkins itself. So yeah, I would say learn that maybe first. Okay. I mean, I, I, would, I would split the companies doing CI for iOS into roughly two categories. Um, uh, one group is just complaining about how complex and annoying Jenkins is to work with. And the other group just complains about they can't do all the things that you can do with Jenkins. That's roughly how it goes in this industry. Um, yeah, I, I think Jenkins definitely, I think you should learn, or it's a good thing to have some concept of what's happening with CI. Um, unless you're working for like a small company where you're one of the few developers, you're probably not going to be digging into the CI stuff that much. Typically they have, sometimes some companies have entire teams that just handle CI, um, build stuff. So, you know, unless you have a, a small team, you're probably not the person writing all the code, not really code scripting um, the CI stuff. But I think it is important to, or I think valuable to show that you understand what happened, what's happening here. You can set up a CI system, you can run some unit tests, um, you can set up some UI test framework and have that work. Um, you know, maybe even deploy a, 
a beta, ver beta version to test flight to make that, um, that shows that you understand what value you get out of uh, continuous integration systems. Um, so if you can show that you understand the value and have, oh, here's my, my sample app, doesn't do much, but you know, it's got a CI, so I know when the unit test breaks, something like that, I think that's valuable. Because yeah. every, every company's got their own way of doing things, and most outgrow like the, the standard kind of cloud-supported uh, thing. They just want to do something customized with it. So um, it's good to know the concepts, but you know, whatever job you're interviewing for, they're probably doing something totally different than what you learned. But the concepts translate. I think now that you mentioned it, um, one of the, the the struggles that I had when I first started um, working as a professional in the industry was actually trying to figure out what the Jenkins system was doing at at this company that I worked at. And I think I think Jenkins is such a different like software system. Like if you're an iOS developer, you mostly know what like eighty percent of other iOS developers know already, and being able to do something like Jenkins to write something against Jenkins is, I feel like a totally different skill set. and being able to demonstrate that you can do something else other than just, you know, table view and JSON loading, being able to, to work with Jenkins, I feel like is a very, very valuable skill. I think so. Definitely. If I was building a small team and someone comes to interview and says, Oh yeah, I can, I can set up the CI system and just do it. You know, that's, that's huge. Um, I don't know how many people are going to be, that interested in, in your Jenkins skills. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's one of those sad things like, if you're an iOS developer, like, you know a lot of the, the core concepts, but if you also know how to build maybe a backend system, that's also something that's very important that you should also know. And I feel like it's just one of these things where it's not your, your, your core thing that you, have to, that you have to learn, but it's one of those things where it's really important that you know it as well. Um, true. So, I mean, if we talk about like CI stuff, that can be someone's entire career. You know, iOS can be their entire career. Um, backend component development can be their entire career. Like how do, you, how do you build in skills if you're still trying to learn like your main thing, if it's iOS or Mac, um, how do you build in like backend skills? How do, you, how do you learn what's happening there? How can you communicate with your, your server team? I think, I think over time, as you get more and more experience with iOS projects, it, it'll come naturally to you that you'll have to debug some of the backend code or maybe debug some of the Jenkins code. And through that process, you'll slowly uh, kind of undo the mystery behind this thing that you don't know yet. And I feel like that's generally how, how software technology works anyways. The learning process is always through, you know, some kind of task that you have to accomplish along the way and you'll, you'll acquire these skills. It's not something that you magically learn because someone said it was a good thing to know. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Like there's one topic here, or there's a couple of topics like manual memory management and ARC concurrent programming. Trying to learn these, uh, these topics as a standalone topic, uh, I, I would say it's almost impossible to, to figure out why you're doing things the way that they recommend. It's very hard. Um, true. Yeah. I, I would not be able to think of a, a project that would make me learn manual, ma manual memory management. So I have nothing for you there. That makes sense. Yeah, but if you're writing C code for something low level like embedded, like you get to learn there regardless. It's gonna come in, you know, I learned it writing C, C++ code. And so I was able to use that knowledge with what's happening with Objective-C, even if they're different systems, a lot of concepts translate and a lot of things that Objective-C added to help is like, you understand what's happening under the hood so you can kind of infer the, the behavior that you're getting with ARC. But yeah, setting out to learn that 
front and center would be, would be difficult. Yeah. Developers are people just like us. And a lot of times they have really, really interesting stories about how they got into a programming language, out of a programming language, how they got into programming in the first place. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that have a degree in music or have some affinity for music, or maybe they have a degree in something else like theater, and then they wound up getting into programming for other reasons. I actually used to work with a whole team of people that all had law degrees that wrote code. It's just interesting to me how people have come along in their careers as developers. So we have a show for you. So if you're into Ruby, go check out My Ruby Story. That's at myrubystory.com. Um, so one thing that we haven't covered in the, is the tools and tips, like LLDB, um, debugging. What, like, what, what are some good things from, to, to take out of here? I think first and foremost, learning how to work with breakpoints is like an invaluable skill. You know, irrelevant to whatever language you're working on. Um, something else that's, uh, uh, that's also interesting is maybe instruments. So I'm not, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, like an instruments expert, but some of the tools in there, like the allocations, leaks, and activity time profile, uh, they're, they're very useful when you have the problem that you want to debug. But if you don't have that problem, it's very, it's a very strange system to navigate. I know I mean, that's that's definitely true, and I think it's definitely a common theme that like you don't you just you don't set out to just learn instruments like you learn to, you set out to solve a problem like hey performance in this app is terrible why okay where are we spending all our time you know or we're getting crashes memory leaks and tracking them down that way so what are some ideas if someone wants to play around with instruments like does anyone have any I mean I think instruments is good for two things uh, that well it's good for lots more than two things but it's good there are two things specifically that instruments helps with that you know every developer is going to hit into at some point sometime or another in their iOS development career and one is finding um, excessive memory usage and the other is uh, is figuring out why something is taking a long time why performance isn't as good as you'd like and so you know if you're working on an app check check memory usage and if you see it uh, particularly increasing without ever decreasing or uh, or even just hitting a high water mark that's higher than you'd like. Use the allocations instrument to try to track down what is what's actually you know e- using the memory um, and, and possibly why it's leaking if there's a leak. Uh, as for the other one, performance, that's usually the time profiler instrument and that you use to do that. And I think it's important as a developer to learn to pay attention to the performance of your app if there is an operation that takes you know longer than long enough that you can perceive that it's taking time, you probably ought to at least dig in and figure out if there's a way you could make that faster because users don't like to wait around. Um, and often, you know, time profiler will help you see where there's a hot spot where, where whatever your code is doing is taking longer than um, maybe you want it to. And you can often find ways to, to optimize things without, you know, without removing functionality by caching data or using a different, data structure or, um, you know, optimizing an algorithm somewhere. Uh, I think that's maybe not first day on the job iOS developer stuff, but it's definitely sort of the difference between a junior developer and a mid-level developer. Yeah, that makes sense. I think once, once you start getting into performance, things like that, that's where you can really, you, your engineering skills, problem-solving skills really shine through. I remember I dug through code that had real performance problems and this was audio code. So that was the entire thing. We weren't even sure if we we're going to get it to run on the iPad, you know, four at that time might've been, it might've been iPad three, but digging in and finding out, okay, what methods are being called all the time? Do we need to call them all the time? Can we, are there things that we know about what's happening with the app that we can um, 
make them have faster because we have knowledge of what was happening. We don't need to call this 50 times. We call it one time because the data just doesn't change or something like that. Or one of the things we did is digging down into the threading system and just tuning it so our threads wouldn't time out. So they had time to do the audio processing that they need to. And, you know, things like that um, really improved the performance and we were able to get it working and it worked out great. But um, yeah, that's really kind of where the engineering skills come in. I'm not sure how to teach that other than doing it and kind of building your skills um, just from starting with simple problems. Uh, but that goes to the question, like this, this diagram is all like technology things. Um, but I think as we've been hinting is at, you know, to make yourself useful as an engineer, you have to solve problems that no one's really figured out yet because it's with a custom app. Or what are some ways to do that? Or is the answer just to solve problems? I don't know. <laughs> I think for me personally, I'm always a, I'm always really curious as to why things are performing and behaving badly. That's one of the more motivating tasks that I'll have as an engineer. And just trying to make the, the application be as fast as possible is one of, one of the things that I like to do. So through, through that process, you'll typically, you'll have to face some of the more interesting Xcode tools like the network profiler or the memory usage profiler. And then you'll dive further, further down into more low-level instrument instruments tools. I mean, I like it, but I understand when students are kind of they're 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 not exactly that confident in getting into that initially. But once they once they're once they find a problem set that they that they can like tackle comfortably, that's kind of what leads them down that path of becoming a better engineer. It's always it's always trying to adapt your skills, your skill set to something that's a little bit out of your comfort zone and trying to approach engineering that way. You're never going to become like the best engineer overnight. It's always a very slow process. And yeah, but that's how I've, I've been trained along the way. Yeah, that makes sense. And even like with the table views, we've got a ready-made thing that can always be sped up. Even, you know, we don't spend a lot of time professionally like hacking in performance improvement store table you stuff but you can always run it and make things better um you know phones work pretty fast so it's really not going to be part of your database job but it is a good way to dig into the system and see what's happening so i think that's a good way you can learn and kind of learn how to make trade-offs and use the knowledge you had the system to improve performance yeah i have a student that is working professionally and he inherited a like pretty nasty problem so the previous developer he wrote out a system that uh, fetched some data from the network and they stored it all in a plist file and this is like i don't know hundreds and hundreds of kilobytes worth of plist data so what they did with this data was they stored it in uh, some kind of json-ish format that they can retrieve out of uh, the plist and then to read later on. And so they would go through all of these table views and collection view screens. And every time they would go into a screen like forward, back, forward, back, and forward, they would have to parse this entire P list again and to get all the data that they needed and filter the things that they didn't want to, to show. They would have to do this all the time. And the solution was to just maybe like keep it in memory for a short amount of time until you feel like it's obsolete. And the student uh, came to me with this problem. And, you know, this is, this is something that you have to try out. Like, just try to find the easy fix first. And then 
if that doesn't work, then you go to more extreme measures. And no, it makes sense that you could definitely like, oh, put everything in core data and just filter out the easy stuff first. And yeah, you could definitely go on that down that rabbit hole. But like, yeah, if it fits in memory and use it again, just keep it in memory. Does it crash the phone? No, good. Okay. Just like the memory usage have performance problems? No, maybe that's uh, maybe that's good enough. So you can work on more important things. Yeah, there's always more important things to work on. Which yeah, is great. true. Is there anything else we should talk about before we get to picks? All right. Well, I'll take that. I'll take that as a no. Uh, James, do you have any picks for us? Uh, sure. So a friend of mine um, turned me on to cocaine and rhinestones uh, last week. Um, not literal cocaine drugs, and I don't actually own any rhinestones, but this is a podcast on classic country music, and I've gone through a couple episodes, and this is really cool stuff if you have any interest at all in some of the, the foundational country music. Like I'm a, I played pedal steel for, for years. My favorite steel player was Ralph Mooney, and there's one episode on Ralph Mooney, and I didn't know a fraction of the stuff that came out. Really cool. Um, a lot of it's on the start of the Bakersfield Sound in California, you know, in the early 60s, which revolutionized kind of how country music had. It was kind of the antidote to the slick sounds happening out of Nashville. But Bakersfield Country was more of a hard-driven sound that came out of the clubs. And there are like th at least three episodes on the evolution of that sound. So I think it's really cool. So I give you a thumbs up. I give a thumbs up for Cocaine and Rhinestones, the podcast. I, de I definitely was surprised when that first started <laughs> coming out of your mouth. <laughs> Uh, let's see, Evan, do you have any picks for us? Uh, sure. Yeah. I, uh, I, one I had in my back pocket was, um, Dave Verwer's, um, job board, iOS dev jobs. Uh, this is something that, uh, I've been wanting to talk about on, uh, iOS dev break a little bit. Um, but it's just a very nice interface to find or post, uh, an iOS development job. And uh, it's, you know, super helpful to go through and, and look and see what's out there. And um, I'm not, I might meet, I'm personally not looking right now, but uh, it was, <laughs> it's neat to go take a look and like to see uh, how many are being posted that are remote jobs, for instance, um, and where, where they're coming from. And, and um, so that, that I just thought it was kind of a, a very nice kind of a friendly job board as opposed to a lot of the other kinds of things, especially when you're dealing with, you know, LinkedIn recruiters and so forth and that kind of stuff. So um, I just thought this was a great project that uh, Dave Verwer put together. And yeah, I just thought I'd throw that out there as a pick for today. Great. Yeah. I was glad to see Dave do that. Um, there was a core intuition job board a few years ago and it was actually pretty useful uh, for me. And, and, but then it went away. And, and so to see kind of in some ways what I consider to be like a spiritual successor to that in the form of Dave's job board has, has been nice. Um, Brian, do you have any picks for us? Uh, I have a project as a pick. Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay. So there's a guy, I think his name is Thomas Ricard. Um, his, his GitHub handle is Demillion, and he has a project released. Uh, it's all open source called movie Swift UI. I don't know if anyone has brought up this before, but, uh, he's basically built out an entire, like, music or movie DB application using the Swift UI language. And it's currently supporting uh, the iOS platform, the iPad, and also Mac OS through Catalyst, I believe. And 
the code is all open source. He uses SwiftUI and a lot of these combined tricks. And he also showcases how to implement Flux, which is a part of Redux. And this is amazing what he's been able to do with this non-released non platform or SwiftUI is still in beta. And I really do recommend that you look through his, his code to, to understand what's possible now with SwiftUI. So yeah. Great, thanks. I have one pick. I spent a few days in Las Vegas last week. Um, Las Vegas is one of my least favorite cities in the world. Uh, but I, I find myself there pretty often for some reason. Sorry to any listeners who either love Las Vegas or live there. It's not, not about you. Um, it's mostly just about the strip, which I think is just not my kind of place. Uh, but anyway, I, my pick is actually a Las Vegas pick. It's a record store in Las Vegas called Wax Tracks Records. I first visited Wax Tracks 16 years ago. Um, and I hadn't been there since then. And I decided to go back this time and it was exactly how I remembered it, which was good. Uh, right down to the guy, the owner of, of, of the shop who also works in there, who uh, is from back East somewhere and kind of an older guy. And he is uh, quite, quite a character, kind of rude, um, kind of abrasive, not exactly a nice guy. Uh, but the redeeming features he has, he and his store have is that he's got incredible rare, uh, records that you don't normally find in a record store. Um, his specialty is doo-wop from the fifties and sixties, but, uh, but has all kinds of stuff, rock and, um, and jazz and, you know, pop and all, really all kinds of music. Uh, found a bunch of pretty rare Beach Boys singles this time and um, was happy to get those. And he'll deal with you. If you want to haggle a little, he'll, he'll go for it. So uh, it's worth checking out. If you're into record stores at all, go to Wax Tracks Records in Las Vegas um, and just, uh, you know, be prepared for an experience. Okay. Well, thanks so much for, for being on, Brian. If, uh, if people want to get a hold of you or learn more about you and what you're doing, how can they find you? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Um, if you want to find out more, uh, I have a YouTube channel. It's called Let's Build That App. And the website that I have, that uh, that's kind of where you can go to learn more about the latest in Swift programming. It's called letsbuildthatapp.com. And uh, you can also find me on Twitter at buildthatapp. And yeah, just feel free to drop me any questions that you have. Great, thanks. All right, thanks for listening and see you all next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.